Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This is Russell Moore. You're listening to The Russell Moore Show from Christianity Today. Every week here, we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff uh, about to be coming out that we'll be talking about a little bit later that I can't talk about quite yet. But be sure to tap the cover art and uh, sign up uh, as a member at Christianity Today. You can do so with a, a free trial time to do it. But that will make you aware and able to be involved in some really, really cool stuff that I'm almost tempted to start talking about right now, and I'm not supposed to. So we will wait on that. But I am looking forward today to talking to my friend Sam Alberry, who is the author of uh, many books, including uh, most recently what, uh, what God Has to Say About Our Bodies, and uh, who speaks and preaches and teaches all over the world. And I don't even know why we're doing this uh, this way. We're only a matter of miles uh, separated from each other uh, here in Nashville. So uh, we might as well be in the same room, but we're separated here a little bit by, uh, uh, by some technology, maybe just because it's so early in the morning as we're doing this. Sam, welcome to the Russell Moore Show. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Sam, uh, the death of the queen is, of course, a uh, major story all over the world. Uh, I, uh, when I heard of the queen's death, one of the first things that came to mind for me uh, as an American is the way of um, one of the most moving things, and I watch it uh, on YouTube uh, quite often, is right after the September 11th attacks mm -hmm. on uh, New York and Washington, D.C., Buckingham Palace uh, started playing Star Spangled Banner, which is just an extraordinary thing if you think about the history and, and what that would actually mean. But it was such, a, such an act of solidarity and such an act of knowing exactly what the time would be to show some world leadership through symbols, which mm. is many people dismiss, but is, is crucially important. And so there's, there's a sense in which the, the life of the queen, the death of the queen uh, affects people uh, differently. We have listeners uh, all around the world. Um, a, a lot of them obviously are here in North America. And it's fascinating to watch the 
differences and the similarities. I saw a clip from the BBC, I believe, doing man-on-the-street interviews with people um, about the Queen. And they had two American tourists in London, I believe, who were just speaking uh, with with great reverence uh, about uh, Queen Elizabeth and, and what she meant to them. And then they interviewed uh, an actual resident of London who kind of went into a critique of the monarchy and uh, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. So some of that might have to do with the way that Americans have uh, consumed the crown, uh, series, the Queen movie, uh, a, a great deal of, uh, of of British monarchy sort of uh, content, entertainment uh, content that makes that connection. But I think it's more than that. So let's talk about, first of all, before we talk about kind of what this means for Christians, what did the Queen mean for England as someone who is born and raised in the United Kingdom? Yes, I, I think we're 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 learning what she meant to us by having to, to cope with her absence. Um, she's always been there. I mean, this is the thing everyone has said: is she has been the one point of of continuity um, in our whole lifetimes for for the vast majority of us. So she's always represented that sort of unflappable presence, that that sort of the baseline um, grandmother of the nation. Um, so she's always been there in the background. She's always been a sort of reassuring presence, and, and at certain points she would she would speak in almost grandmotherly terms to the nation. Um, not least, most recently during the, the pandemic, she she gave an address, and it, it made a difference. Um, so there's lots of things that she's meant to us that aren't dependent on whether we are pro royalist or not. Um, even friends of mine who would say that they're not particularly pro royalist. She still has meant something to them. She's still been a, a stabilizing presence um, and a figurehead. I mean, she has been the symbol of our people um, in a way I think that is different to an elected head of state because an elected mm. head, of, head of state is is elected only by a, a portion of the population and is only there for a few years. Um, there's something quite temporary there. They, they do represent the country, but the queen... The Queen embodied our country. And she said once that this was the the role she valued the most, she said, was being the symbol of the nation. Mm. And she very much was. She kind of embodied um who we are as a as a as a people. So irrespective of people's political convictions, ideological convictions, she's meant that for so many people. And I think what we've realized since her passing is how much she meant to us in that regard. Um, mm. I've been listening like you to, to many interviews with lots of people and, and just from my own experience as well, people have been very surprised at how, how emotional they've been. So many friends of mine have said they've been surprised how much they cried. Mm. Um, Boris Johnson, our, our former prime minister, gave a, a really very powerful tribute to her in the House of Commons and... One of the things he said that I thought summed it up was it, it, it feels like we've lost a family member. Mm. And it, mm. it really does, actually. It, it feels akin to losing a grandparent. Um, someone who, who was always there that we sort of took for granted. She was always mm -hmm. around in the background. Um, and someone who, who we're very conscious served us so 
diligently and in such a dedicated way. So I think it, it's partly the, the passing of of her and who she was. And I think bound up with that as well as it's it, it's the end of an era, not just of the, the Elizabethan age, but of that kind of figurehead, mm-hmm. that kind of public servant. I, it, it feels like she was the last really great public servant who wasn't seemingly interested in, in it for herself, but and who, who didn't get a choice, but she chose to embrace um, a life of public service. You know, the the imagery you just used of grandparent and a few minutes ago of grandmother, I had not thought about this before until you just said that. But it seems to me that's a key part of what's different uh, here is that there's a kind of, in almost everyone that I know, even people who have very, very difficult relationships with their parents, often there's a grandparent who's able to have a different kind of authority uh, mm-hmm. and a, a different kind of connection. And uh, with Queen Elizabeth, what you saw was someone who not only had this continuity and had been been around for almost everyone's entire life uh, from the very beginning, but also uh, had this combination of gravity with levity, I mean, I think of the mm. the Paddington Bear uh, <laughs> uh, tea party, which initially, when I saw this, I thought, "Oh, this is some unauthorized sort of CGI deepfake uh, <laughs> that, that one will see." No, she was she was uh, sort of leading the country with this with this light kind of uh, kind of moment. It's very hard to have that kind of leadership that's neither aloof and stuffy nor mm superficial and and light and she she seemed to be able to do it she did and and by every account she had an extraordinarily sharp sense of humor and which she she was very sparing in how she used publicly because again she's she's serving in a certain role and she didn't, didn't would never want her to seem frivolous but she she apparently was very was very very funny there's there's been some wonderful stories that have come out. You've probably heard the, the, the one about the um, her security guard was telling the story about when she ran into some tourists in Scotland and they didn't recognise her. They saw her with with this this her security guard and they said to her, hey, so you're, you're near Balmoral. Do you ever, have you ever seen the Queen? And she just immediately pointed to her bodyguard and said, he sees her often. <laughs> um, and it's just things like that. And then they ended up taking a picture of him um, and, uh, and then she, she took the picture, didn't she? She took the picture of, of all of them, and I think she said, "Do take one with me too," thinking at some point the penny will will eventually drop. But um, and I think that was part of the the sort of the reassuring presence was that she was unflappable. Um, you knew she was on top of things. Every every politician and prime minister has said how thoroughly she knew what was going on and fully on top of all the events and all of the sort of things going on in the world today. But she she also just carried herself in a way that made you feel like, you know, we, d- we don't all have to be panicking the whole time. Um, mm. She sort of conveyed a sense of it, you know, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, there was something very calming and, and stabilising about that. Contrast that with, um, the, I mean, you, you talked about the way that unlike an elected official, there was this, this unifying sense and that sense of stability that came with uh, Queen Elizabeth. 
But then we look at the generations below uh, when it comes to the royal family, and you have. Um, We'll talk about a little bit later about sort of secularization and, and religion and those questions. But just in terms of tumult, um, it, when you have the way that the press, for instance, will in what seems to me to be really horrible ways. I mean, in, in obviously horrible ways when we look at, for instance, the way that Princess Diana died and then the the kind of harassment coming externally, but then also what seems to be often some chaos uh, happening internally with the the other generations of the royal family. Is that just kind of family drama we all have in, in different ways? Or is there something kind of changing in English culture, in world culture that that represents? It's very interesting because Charles, obviously, the the new king has has had a you know I feel for him he's he's had such a busy week that the poor man is is needing to grieve his mother but is also having to to do all these sort of matters of states but he's sort of given some early speeches to to try to indicate and reassure that he is going to have the same values that his mother did the same the same dedication. But it does feel different. I mean, she was 13 at the outbreak of, of the Second World War, I think, um, or something like that. She was very young. Mm. Um, yeah, I think she was, she was 13. So she, she was formed during this, this time of, of national crisis and where everyone was required to do their bit, and, and she did. Um, so she was sort of steeped in that culture of, of service being one of the highest values. And... The culture we live in now, that is not the case. Um, you know, the, the word duty has come up, I, I don't know how many times in the last few days, but it's not a word that feels native to who we are now. Um, that that kind of felt like that was part of her thing, but it's not really where we're at today. So although Charles is is, is saying, and I'm sure very sincerely, and I'm sure he will serve the, the country um, in a very diligent way, that there was something about her generation for whom duty was more important than self-fulfillment, um, self-expression, all of the things that we tend to sort of zero in on in our own days. And, and the, the sort of younger generation of, of royals, in, in one sense, um, represents that. You've got, you know, Harry, who was feeling torn between his, his life as a, as a royal, but someone who, who wanted to do his own thing. Um, and many people would sympathise with that today. So th- there has been a, a generational change. She she came out of a, a time where she really did. I mean, she she gave that that vow on her twenty first birthday, saying that she said, "By my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be dedicated to your service." And and she was as good as her word on that. But there are very few people who approach public life with that with that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. 
There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Moore. As an ancestral Baptist, I'm obviously not uh, too keen on kings or queens serving as head of uh, churches, uh, but there are many people who looking at, uh, even just with uh, Westminster Abbey Funeral and, and several of the uh, several of the, the ways that the country is, is grieving the loss of the queen, not to mention her own uh, posture, a kind of English Christianity that doesn't seem to exist anymore. Uh, do, do, do you see the, the dissonance uh, there between those two things? Very much so. I mean, she was very open about her faith. So we know with, with her, her faith, it wasn't merely a, a kind of a cultural or nominal thing. Um, and that will be, I'm sure, reflected in, in her funeral. She will have chosen... I'm sure a lot of the, the details of what will be sung and said at her funeral, but I can I can feel there's a there's a there's a gap between that and again most people on the street today would would not have that same. It's not just that they wouldn't have the same kind of faith in in Christ that she had, but those cultural um, Christian markers are just less common now. Um, <laughs> that there there's much less of a cultural Christianity. And again, I think her passing sort of represents the end of that era too, where Christianity was was embraced as being sort of such a key part of public life. Um, Charles, it seems, has has faith. Um, he's, he said various things that would indicate he he is trusting Christ and has has championed particularly the, the persecuted church in in different areas, but. But again, it feels it feels different, um, mm-hmm. and the, and that's a sense in which again, culturally, that the royals are a little out of step with with many people today. Um, but in one way, maybe uh, completely in step, just in terms of the the transition points that one sees from uh, the queen, obviously, uh, what we've just talked about with Prince with King Charles. There's a uh, a spirituality, but it, at least in his public comments, seems much more pluralistic. Mm. Uh, defender of the faiths, uh, rather than defender of the faith, he, he had said at one at one point earlier, and um, and more of a more of a a very modern sense of the spiritual as it work in, in, in multiple places. And then to the third generation where there's almost no conversation about the, the conversation that is had about that third generation is mm. largely about uh, things that really have, have, have nothing at least publicly to do with Christian faith. Does it, does it look as though somehow there's almost a representative of, of waves of change that are happening in English life? Even, even there, 
Yes, it, it, that that seems to be the case, and, and time will time will tell. Um, it's interesting that the Queen and we'll, we'll we'll wait and see what happens with with Charles in terms of his public comments, and and we obviously don't know his heart. But the Queen mm-hmm. seemed unembarrassed to talk about Jesus, mm-hmm. particularly in her Christmas Day speeches, which were were very personal. She wrote them herself. This was her message to the nation. She would almost always talk about Jesus and and what Jesus meant to her, how he had been um, such a, a key sort of um, part of her life. I I can't recall hearing Charles talk about Jesus. I've heard him talk about the importance of faith mm-hmm. and I've heard him talk about God. So it'll be interesting to see if, if he is as comfortable talking about Jesus publicly as, as she is, um, mm-hmm. or at least as she was. Um, there were a few years I used to sort of, when Christmas time would come around, I'd, I'd slightly roll my eyes and I, I often said to, to people, you know, Christmas time is when the politicians talk about morals and the bishops talk about politics and it's only the Queen who actually talks about Jesus, um, <laughs> which she always would. And, and we'll see what happens with with Charles and then in, in due course with William. Um, I'm, I'm told that at, at William and Kate's wedding, they wrote their own intercessions. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know from... Um, William's schooling that he has he has very much heard the gospel there has there, there has been an evangelical presence in his schooling um, mm-hmm. where he is with it we we will wait and see but it's the language these days is much less about belief and more about values and mm-hmm. that seems to be the sort of the main converse, conversation point is what are the values of, of Charles going to be what are the values of William going to be what are the the causes they've been aligning themselves with and what does that tell them about where they're at? That seems to be more significant to culture than what they believe and what they profess to worship. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, of course, uh, ordained in the Church of England. And one of the interesting things about the Church uh, of England is this always delicate balance uh, between various uh, constituencies within the church, not that is a, a modern sort of factionalism, but that has existed in, in tension really fr- from the very beginning. And one of the things that uh, I will often hear are from Anglican uh, evangelicals. I mean, I might talk to an ev- Anglican evangelical in England who will say, well, the problem is the loss of evangelical witness and biblical authority and the Church of England is just drifted into uh, a, a very uh, a very leftist sort of uh, vision of Christianity or, or a very formal kind of cultural uh, understanding but without the power of the gospel. And then I might talk to a high church uh, Anglican who will say, well, the Church of England is a mess because all of the the old parishes are being shut down and all of the attention is going to these evangelical uh, Anglican churches who are uh, to, you know, having rock music and, and, and so forth and all of these innovations and, and doing church growth strategies that are kind of alien uh, to us. And so you have kind of both uh, groups thinking that the other is in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, what do you think the future of, of with these changes that are happening in terms of uh, culture in the United Kingdom and the, the kind of uh, secularization that's happening throughout Western Europe, and we'll talk about North America in just a minute, 
what will happen to the church? And, and by church, I mean specifically the established church, the Church of England. Yeah, the, the, I, w- I would love to have some snappy answer to that. I, I'm really not sure because, as you say, one of the, one of the interesting dynamics, and I've, I've heard the very same thing. Uh, I've got friends who are part of the General Synod, the governing body of the Church of England. I, I, I speak to people who are theologically conservative and people who are theologically progressive. All of them think the other side is winning. Uh, all of them are pessimistic. So those who are more progressive and are wanting to see certain sort of formal doctrinal changes and embracing of same-sex marriage, they're, they're nervous and pessimistic, but then so are my conservative friends. So whether that means there's actually a stalemate, um, I, I don't know. But on, on the ground, it does tend to be the evangelical churches that are growing. Uh, that has been the case for, for some time. And we're, we're beginning to see that really affect life in particular dioceses where the diocese is running out of money and it's only the evangelicals who are are vaguely solvent. So mm. I, th- I think it will come down to, to finances at some point. A lot of things often do. Um, so it's hard to, d- at least demographically, it, it would seem to suggest things are going more in favour of the evangelicals. Um, lots of churches growing and planting. Um, so we're, we're in a sort of funny situation where it feels like a lot of the hierarchy is dominated by theological liberals, but then in terms of who's actually filling the pews, it tends to be the evangelicals. So there's a there's a tension there. Mm. And there will most likely be some kind of, of split Um because the, the doctrinal differences are irreconcilable. You, you can't live with that kind of division. And the question would be, what kind of split will emerge? Will it be a North American-style issue with the, the Episcopal Church and ACNA, or will it be a slightly more amicable, agree to, to go our separate ways, and um, we'll, we'll wait and see. But I, I can't see it hanging together much longer. Well, isn't it interesting how many of these uh, splits that are happening, not just in, in Anglicanism, but United Methodist Church in North America and, and various other places, over these questions of sexuality? Um, because it is very difficult, if not impossible, to find a via media there. Mm. Uh, when for one side, uh, those of us who are uh, in the more traditional uh, Christian understanding. This is a matter of biblical authority and we can't do away with that. For people who have a, uh, a different understanding, it's, well, this is a matter of, of human rights and marginalization of, of people. There's just no way to come in and, and try to navigate through that. So it really does seem almost as though division has to happen in, in these places. Yeah. I, I think so. You know, the, 10, 15 years ago now, the introduction of women bishops was a, was an issue that was very divisive, but it wasn't for evangelicals a sort of a first order issue that mm-hmm. was sort of a, this is an existential threat to the whole denomination and there are ways of of working around it and having alternative oversight and that kind of thing. But you're right, when it comes to our doctrine of marriage and human sexuality, it, it's impossible to to compromise on that. Um, mm-hmm. but both sides, it's the one thing, <laughs> when I was on Synod, it was the one thing me and, and my more progressive counterparts agreed on was the Church of England has to make a decision one way or the other. They can't keep mm-hmm. trying to sort of keep everyone together. Um, 
it's a, it's a gospel issue for us. Um, and both sides think the other side is doing something extraordinarily harmful uh, to people through what they believe, that my progressive friends think I'm I'm harming LGBT people with my theology and, and I, I sincerely believe anything other than the biblical teaching on this is, is going to be doing eternal harm to people mm-hmm. as well. So again, the, the stakes are so high on this that there will need to be some kind of divergence. If you were to just walk outside onto the streets of London or Manchester or somewhere else and talk to a group of 22-year-old people uh, there. And you started asking about what do you think about Jesus? Uh, What do you think about the church? Um, I mean, obviously there would be differences, but what would would be, do you think, the, the typical kind of response from that age group in the United Kingdom right now? Yeah, for, to the extent that I, I uh, you know, obviously caveats are plenty to this, but from the conversations I've had, people tend to associate the church now with with abuse of power, mm-hmm. um, with moral compromises over the years and cover-ups and all of that kind of thing. Um, but are still people are still open to talking about Jesus. There, there are increasing numbers mm. who, who know next to nothing about Jesus. They may have heard of Jesus and know that he was someone who lived 2,000 years ago, worshipped by Christians, but many may not even know more than that. Um, it's interesting, when I've done university missions in the UK, um, if, I, if I'm doing a series of, of talks over a few days, almost always I'll, I'll do the first talk on the failures of the church mm-hmm. because I, I want to show that self-awareness to understand that, that, that I also see some of the things that the public have, have seen and to try to make a distinction between the, the performance of the church and the claims of, of Jesus and actually yeah. try and even use our failings as an apologetic for Jesus. But I found that has been a fruitful way of, of acknowledging where Christianity has, has not best reflected the teachings of Christ um, in a way that actually leads to conversations about Christ. Mm. Um, but increasing ignorance, I, I think there's less... Um, antagonism towards Jesus. I, I hear very few people actually saying anything negative about him, but I suspect that's as much to do with ignorance of, of what he says than, than anything else. Mm-hmm. You and I were once at a pastor's conference of some kind or the other, and uh, I, I think about it often, uh, he, yeah, somewhere in the States. And uh, the, the person on the platform was uh, giving away books to, you know, the oldest people there, the youngest people there, people who <laughs> did come the, far, the, the farthest distance. And uh, one of the questions was, how, how old, when was your church founded? And so you go from, you know, church planters who six months or less, and you just keep, they kept going, 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 and you kept standing. Everybody would sit down as their age until finally they said, well, how old is your church? And your church was founded in what? 1002 or 1234 or something like something like this and I think immediately everyone realized oh yes there, there's there's quite a a difference even when it comes to to chronology between uh, the, the UK and the USA uh, when it comes to church life you have the unique perspective of somebody who has has served within the church in the United Kingdom you're someone who serves 
our church, Emmanuel Church, Nashville, in uh, the United States, and you're someone who speaks all over the world uh, all the time. I, I can hardly keep up with where you are on the planet on any given day. What are the differences that you see between uh, evangelical Christians and, and church life in the United States and in Western Europe and, and other places in the world? Yes, there's there's lots of there's lots of differences, and these are, are, are going to be, you know, generalizations. Obviously, um, I think one of the the most significant things I keep coming back to is what for us in the UK has been a a gradual process of the culture becoming secular. I mean, we've had sort of decades to come to terms with that and to to learn how to to live within that and to learn how to reach a culture that is no longer sharing many of our values. Um, in so many parts of the States, that has happened within a decade. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the, the big differences I'm seeing is, is how to respond to secularism. Mm. Because in the UK, we've, we've had a long time to learn how to respond to it, how to try to understand it, how to try and be fruitful in ministry within that kind of context. I think because it's, it's been such a, a quick process in, in so many parts of the US, one of the, the big responses I'm seeing in, in so many parts of the church is is anger. Um, and so I'm, I'm seeing far it's more... anger. Than I, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and a sense of, of, you know, being faithful means having my level of anger at everything that's ah. going on in culture. Yeah. Um, thankfully, not across the whole of the, the, the US church, but I've, I've seen more of that than I've seen happening in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that there are lots of things that the UK church can learn from the US. I've always thought the US is, is better at, at discipleship and training them than we are in the UK. I do wonder whether doing fruitful evangelism in a, in a kind of more post-Christian cultural context is something um, the UK church has had to have more experience at. And there'll be parts and regions of the US where people have had to do that for many more years as well. But I think that that's one of the key differences is, is how we respond to a, a rapidly secularizing culture around us and um, how we see that as an opportunity for the gospel mm -hmm. um, and not just as a sign of we're, we're losing the kind of culture war, but to think, okay, this is a, this is a new context for us. Let, let's see the gospel shine in this mm -hmm. kind of setting now. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up 
and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You know, and the connections uh, between uh, the, the, the church in the United Kingdom and the church, meaning capital C church, uh, the, the, the actual body of Christ in the United States, the connections have always been so close. Hmm. I, mean, I think of um, speaking one time in London and one of the things that was on my mind is how indebted I am uh, to C.S. Lewis, whose portrait's right over my, my head uh, hmm. here, and John Stott and J.I. Packer and, and, and so many figures that were sort of speaking to me from across the pond and to so many of us. And then when I arrived, uh, the, the person who was there said, we know you, we can't, that you don't have anything to do with this and you can't take credit for it, obviously, but we almost want to have someone just to kind of stand in that we can thank uh, for Billy Graham hmm. because uh, he, he stood up and he said, how many of you are Christians because of a Billy Graham crusade or because someone close to you? Uh, came to know Christ at a Billy Graham crusade, and it was it was a third to a half of the room. Yeah. So you just think about those those very close connections that really aren't. I mean, there is something about cultural contextualization. We do have to do that, but um, Billy Graham walked right into London with his North Carolina accent and just uh, preached the Bible. And uh, C.S. Lewis was able to to write. Uh, from Oxford with his with his pipe and with all of his Englishness and reach this kid in Mississippi. I mean, there, there's something that transcends all of that in its its authenticity, and I think it's something really kind of beautiful and ought to ought to maybe cause us to think about how how much more often that happens than we think. It it is it is a beautiful thing, and it, it's a reminder that. You know, all of us in our particular networks and movements and locations have have so much to learn from the wider Christian scene, from from Christians from other cultural contexts. Um, I'm sure it's part of how God has designed it. There's meant to be an interdependence between us within the global church, and there are there are friends of ours who are, are sort of doing amazing work to to resource and help equip churches in parts of of the third world and. You know, as we become more interconnected, I'm looking forward to seeing how shaped and formed we can be by church leaders from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, mm -hmm. We've had such a close relationship as the UK and the US that it's not surprising if the special relationship extends into the, the church as well. But if if we can learn that much from each other just across the pond, you, you've got to wonder how much will we learn from our our brothers and sisters in, in Africa or the emerging churches in China or South America. Um, well, as the, as the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, said about uh, Anglicanism, that the typical Anglican right now is a, I think he said a 32 year old woman in Nairobi. Yeah. Not, uh, not, uh, not someone in London uh, or, or uh, Cambridge. And that's, that's really having having all sorts of implications for good yeah. in, in multiple ways, really all around the world. Absolutely. And I think it was um, Rebecca McLaughlin in her, her book, Confronting Christianity, who made the point that when, when people are insulting evangelicals, 
they don't realise that most of the people they're insulting are are African. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the image, cultural image of the evangelical may be the older white guy in the mm-hmm. US, but the reality is the evangelical, as you say, is is younger, female, and most likely African. I had our, our mutual friend, uh, Tim Keller, with me to a group of uh, completely secular students um, in the United States, most of whom had never met an evangelical Christian uh, before. And during the question and answer time, someone said, why do, why do the two of you even keep the evangelical language when it is, has become so tarnished and for obvious reasons? And I will never forget, Tim's response was to say, because most of us are in Asia and Africa and Latin America, and the North Americans don't get to choose just what we're, don't get to just choose what we're called mm. because, because we may have messed up uh, the word. And it was really striking to me because I watched and those uh, students just sort of nodded their heads and said, fair enough. Uh, But the most striking thing to me was not the way he kind of turned the question around. It was the fact that he said, we, Mm. most of us are in Africa and Asia and Latin America. And I think if we can get that, something will be really bright about the future. Absolutely. What gives you hope, Sam Albury, as you look around? What gives me hope is Christ will build his church. Mm-hmm. Christ is building his church. Of the increase and in, and of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Um, and we see that around us. There are always, whatever else is going on in culture that may cause us dismay, there are always the green shoots of, of gospel life coming through. Um, and I, I, you get to move around the country a fair bit too and seeing so many wonderful younger pastors um, wonderful ministries, wonderful church plants, and then seeing what is going on in other parts of the world. Um, it, it's it's humbling, but it's it's very inspiring too. Um, mm. there, there is just some very... God has raised up some wonderfully godly, able, humble leaders right across the world who are just faith, serf, serving faithfully. Mm. Thank you, Sam Alberry, for being with us today on The Russell Moore Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. Uh, Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review there. Really helps people to find the show if you leave a review. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find show notes with some resources for you. And you can send this along to a friend who might be interested uh, in some of these topics. While you're there, check out Christianity Today, founded by Billy Graham. Uh, with all kinds of resources for you in understanding the world around you and in advancing and carrying out the mission of Christ. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today's Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer, Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. 